Hello, this is Aaron Eckhart, and you are listening to Center Stage with Mark Gordon, the beautiful one and only Mark Gordon. Welcome to Center Stage. My name is Mark Gordon. On this program, we're going to talk with Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski about their latest film, Big Eyes. It's the story of Margaret and Walter Keene, and one of the most epic art frauds in history. Nobody knew about this story, and how, how is it that you guys uncover the story and then found it was good material for a well, film. It's, it's one of those things where everyone knows the art. We, we sort of don't expect people to know the behind the scenes uh, almost of any of our films. But they, they uh, generally when we do these biographies, everybody is sort of famous for one thing. Or, and usually what they're famous about is not necessarily the story. You know, Andy Kaufman's famous for Taxi, but that's not really what our movie was about. Uh, so this was one of the things where we, we, of course, knew the art. We knew the art from uh, just the the fact that it was everywhere, particularly when we were much younger. We stumbled onto the actual story. Uh, we were working on a science fiction project, believe it or not. Uh, a movie that never got made, but it took place on another planet. And a bunch of Earth garbage kind of lands on their planet, and uh, they're completely won over by it. Rapidly, they start wearing like you know, uh, you know, bell-bottom jeans and and listening to MC Hammer albums. And so we're looking for examples of 20th century pop culture, hopefully funny pop culture, or forgotten pop culture that we could infect this planet with. And Scott was reading a book. My wife had a book called the Encyclopedia of Bad Taste, which was very helpful. We were looking for things like the Pet Rock, Village People, you know, uh, fur boots from the 70s. Right. Uh, anything that was just over the top kitsch or weird or tasteless perhaps and uh, there was a two page essay on the Keens and it was this crazy story and I just couldn't believe it and it just it was just kind of a quick overview of of the the rise and fall of Margaret and Walter and I was astonished and I showed it to Larry and I said wow this this is really an interesting one because when we do our biopics I mean the more obscure, the better for us. But we don't want, like Larry said, we don't want stories that people know. We want stories that happen in the margins of pop culture. And this kind of seemed to have it all because the paintings are incredibly famous, but nobody knows anything about them. And well, Now people do because we made a movie. But the psychodrama behind the paintings and this crazy George and Martha wacko relationship between Margaret and Walter and all the stuff about high art and low art and kitsch and what is good art and what is bad art and Walter sort of changing the face of mass marketing of art. I mean, there was like a lot of big stuff in there. And so uh, we started doing some research when we had free time. Larry's friends with Matthew Sweet, who's a rock and roller and also the world's biggest keen fanatic. (laughs) Matthew has a, a house stacked high and low with Keen originals and then Matthew's so far gone he also has all the Keen knockoffs there there were a lot of artists like Franca and Eve and Igor who were all pumping out faux Keens in the 60s so Matthew has those Matthew also has a lot of magazine articles and old Keen brochures and Keen publications and everything you ever want so we looked at all Matthew's stuff then we went to the library and we got uh, into the deep into the microfiche with the old San Francisco newspapers. Right, because it was, it was stuff that wasn't available on a Google search. You know, because most of the, the Keens really, uh, like, you know, had their key, peak popularity in the early 60s. 
and that stuff uh, you know wasn't uh, wasn't easily Google uh, via Google uh, pretty back in two thousand three, and that's how we stumbled onto things like. Um, like the Danny Houston character in the movie, the the, the Dick Nolan character, and that Walter kept on. Um, he was uh, a journalist. Yeah, yeah. He kept on popping up in this gossip column all the time, S- suspiciously often. Yeah. So they would just be planted, planted stories. Uh, Walter Keene seen at uh, at Alfong's restaurant, or Walter Keene, you know, uh, him telling a joke, or just we love it because we're we're big fans of a movie called The Sweet Smell of Success, which is about the you know the sort of nineteen fifties gossip. Uh, you know, nightclub world, and so when we read these Dick Nolan articles, that instantly came to our mind. But what was interesting when we were doing all this research, it was really telling the Walter Keene story, because Walter Keene was the uh, person who had the, um, uh, you know, uh, was the front man. He was the person who was out there telling all the story. So we were really getting a one-sided thing, and and we knew enough about the story that we knew Margaret was the real painter, uh, but we weren't getting her side of the story. And so that that made us, uh, you know, we had to go track down the real Margaret Keene. And so uh, Matthew got in touch with the the gallery, uh, a really nice gentleman, a guy named Robert Brown, who then uh, uh, gallery arranged, in San Francisco, yeah, uh, the Keene Eyes Gallery. Um, and they arranged a meeting for us to uh, fly up and and uh, spend some time with Margaret. And that's where we really, the heart and soul of the movie came came together. It's funny and touching and sad. Here's a woman that's really struggling to find her voice and what she does, the resolve that she has. It, it, it resonates not only for women, men, but anyone that wants to do something to really follow what they're passionate about and to have their own voice be heard. And I, it's just a great film about emancipation, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad I, to hear I, that. Thank you. I, I mean, part of our shaping of the story and kind of what to tell and what not to tell and what time periods to cover was to be able to start Margaret kind of coming out of 50 suburbia. So we would sort of have, have that image of the, of the audience's head uh, of like a woman's place sort of in that era and the husband, the husband is the spokesman for the family. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure back then, you know, if Margaret had had stationery printed up, you know, sending mail it would envelopes would have said you know Mrs. Walter Keene right you know that, that's how it was done back then uh, and then we wanted the movie to sort of end where it feels like we don't we don't say dates but it feels like about 1970 and women's lib is sort of is starting to bubble up in the background and that's when Margaret now has the courage to, to you know speak her voice as you said well even in looking at a film like Vertigo when uh, James Stewart's he's got Kim Novak at their shopping and she wants a certain dress, and he goes, "No, do that one." And then uh-huh. the lady helping Kim Novak says, "I believe Monsieur knows what Madame wants." Yes, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. good. That's yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a. Really... And it's funny. Hitchcock was a little bit of a uh, in the back of Tim's mind for some parts of the movie. There, there's certainly the woman trapped in a house part of the film, the blonde trapped in a house that feels very Hitchcockian. For obvious reasons, we talked about Vertigo just because it was San Francisco in right. our time period. Right. But Rebecca is also another, you know, uh, touchstone. And it's funny, Kim Novak actually was a friend of Walter Keene. Walter Keene uh, and Kim Novak had a little bit of a relationship. Google the two names and you'll see a bunch of pictures where they're painting together. Walter really discovered early on that art critics didn't take him seriously. So he went to celebrities. Anytime a celebrity was up in San Francisco, he would gift them with a painting and make sure there was a person there with a camera. So all, all of a sudden they would end up in a newspaper with the, you know Kim Novak holding a painting, Joan Crawford holding a painting, Natalie Wood holding a painting, 
And that's what he kind of built his empire on, because all of a sudden the common man would say, oh, that, that's the art that, that Hollywood collects. And so, um, uh, you know, and once Walter figured out how to make the, uh, the, the, the prints cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, uh, having that Hollywood connection allowed him to just really just mass market it and, and appear on things like the Merv Griffin show and the Jack Parr show and, and just, just, just... Or, he, or even better, uh, Joan Crawford on The Tonight Show. Yeah. Saying, look at this gorgeous painting I just acquired. Right. Joan Crawford put two keen paintings in uh, Baby Jane. They're in, they're in the background uh, in Baby Jane. And it's actually... His hang, hanging in the house. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, their portrait of Joan is, on the, uh, is in the background of, the, uh, of her autobiography. In doing this research, you got to meet Margaret, obviously, yes. Yes. and then uh, she gave you the rights also to her her paintings as well. Right. That yeah. Was... Well, that was a deal breaker for us. I mean, what's weird is, you know, we have all, all these posters, all these biopics we've done. This is the first time Larry and I have ever actually sought out somebody for the rights ourselves. We we've either done movies that were unauthorized, or where somebody was bringing us rights. And we, we, what, we, we got movies made and we've written a bunch of scripts that did not get made. But we've never been, been the guys tracking someone down you know, with a checkbook in hand. And the reason with Margaret was we needed the art. And it was, it was kind of a, it was a, it was a tricky request because you know, we're just two guys who have never asked for someone's art rights before. But I mean, we, we knew practically that there's no way to make this movie without Margaret's permission. I mean, there was a biopic a few years ago, Picasso. Was the title Picasso? No. It was like Surviving Picasso or something like that? Yes, yeah. Surviving. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and we we like to make fun of the predicament the filmmakers found themselves in because they did it without permission. And then the Picasso estate said, you can't reproduce any of our work. And so they, they had to do a movie full of fake Picassos, which just seems kind of silly. <laughs> and we, we, it's like, what's the point of making a movie where you're going to have fake Keens? Yeah, you just kind of reach the end of the line at that point. So, we, we needed Margaret's permission and as, for the art. And as long as we're doing that, we wanted you know her life rights, and so we had to earn her trust. And you know, it, it actually took us one year to get to win Margaret over. Well, I, I can mean, imagine, especially what she had already been through. Exactly, she's yes. very shy. She's a very quiet woman. She's very reserved. She didn't really necessarily want like you know these bad times. Uh, you know, uh, you know, drudged up again. I mean, also, she'd reached a sort of just a nice, content point in her life. Right. I mean, she had the gallery. You know, there's there's certain people her fans who who would do commissions. Mm-hmm. So you know the you know the commissions can pay the bills, and then when she's not doing commissions, she can just paint whatever little children make her happy. Mm-hmm. Those go up in the gallery to Ghirardelli Square. But I do think there was a bit of like she did. She still felt that people. Uh, a lot of people still thought Walter Keane was a painter, that, because when yeah. uh, the uh, the the trial took place after the Keane's fame had kind of uh, uh, gone down a bit. So when they were super famous, Walter was the front man and, and the and the spokesperson. And when it came out uh, during a trial, it was more like in the back of the newspaper. It was like uh, those two two people are fighting about that art, you know, that you, you no longer pay attention to. And so she really feels she never really got the proper the proper due. Um, yeah, and then, and then Walter lived for another fourteen years after the trial, even though he lost. He kept giving interviews saying he was the painter, because who can stop him? Right. He, he's just a, he's just a crazy determined man. And you know, and, and Margaret was never somebody chasing down news stories. Walter was. But what we got from Margaret. Were, was the personal stuff. Like, for example, we didn't know how far the conspiracy went. 
you know, in, in terms, you know, did other people in the gallery know? Did her daughter know? And uh, we just assumed that her daughter knew. And and she told us that she she had to lie to her own daughter. Well, I mean, here's the thing: the daughter, the daughter knew, but didn't know. Right. It was it was this big, terrible, very obvious elephant in the room, where Margaret Walter and Jane are all living together. You know, okay, Jane's young; she's nine. But she's not stupid. And she knows mommy is in the painting room 12 hours a day. And Walter's out partying. And then Walter keeps you know walking out with new paintings. It's not hard to figure out what's going on. But it, it was that which is never discussed. And, and if Jane tried to bring it up, Margaret would shoot her down saying, No, Walter is the painter. Right. And so Jane knew that Margaret was lying to her. And Margaret could look in Jane's eyes and know that Jane knew she was being lied to. And this was killing Margaret. That it was like creating this gulf. And Margaret wasn't close to anybody else. So the only person she's close to, she's just lying to her face for 10 years. Right. And once Margaret told us that, we knew that was, wow, that was, that's, that's powerful stuff. That, that's a, that is a, would be a central core of our film. Yeah. And until Margaret told us that in the interview, you know, Jane as a character, had, we hadn't even thought about it. Right. Because Jane wasn't showing up in any of the newspaper stories. Right. Except as background. It's interesting with her character as she's painting these children, she's really doing self-portraits because the mm-hmm. kids all mm-hmm. look displaced, marginalized, right. lonely, and that was her life. Well, yes. that's funny you say yes. that because um, uh, I think that's the one of the good things that, the, that would come out of the movie, that uh, the art is considered kitsch by a lot of people, but I think it's considered kitsch because uh, they either know it uh, one of two ways or both ways uh, the one is that it's the artwork of Walter Keane who's this masculine Robert Mitchum guy with a scotch and it really makes no sense whatsoever that he's painting these these children holding kittens and it's sort of uh, it, it, there's a disconnect there that just, just seems super super odd it, it doesn't seem sincere or you know it as just anonymous art you know that you bought in Woolworths or your grandmother bought in Woolworths and uh, once again, or your great grandmother, exactly at this point, and so it just seems like commerce. But when you realize that that most of the paintings are coming from a place of sincerity, when they're when you know Margaret is painting these sad eyes with a tear in it because she's locked up in the attic and she has no other outlet, so she's actually expressing herself and her emotions through these paintings. They take on a different feeling. They take on a different emotion that you wouldn't get now, and maybe that's not enough to, for you know certain people to say they're great paintings or they're or they're you know, but but there's certainly uh, uh, an element of folk art or an element of just like uh, there there's something real there, and that and I think for a lot of people they never expected that to come out of uh, the keen painting, the the idea that those those are real emotions, those that's that's that sincerity. Walter's cover story was so bizarre. I mean, I mean, I mean, there there, there was this extremely elaborate introduction to one of their books uh, which which was allegedly written by Tom Wolfe under a pseudonym and then Walter kind of like co-opted a lot of a, a lot of the uh, the storytelling in that introduction for the rest of his life in terms of his backstory and I mean this whole elaborate thing about traveling World War two after I'm sorry traveling the continent after World War two and going to the orphanages and seeing the children in the bombed out buildings with the scrawny fingers and the distended bellies and the big eyes pleading, help me, help me. It's so crazy. Margaret had such a strong core value of honesty. Yeah. And Walter didn't. 
And so for the 10 plus years, she had to, I could see that would be a, a big dilemma for her to hold on to. Well, that. I mean, what we really locked on to with her becoming a Jehovah's Witness was the idea that you have to live an honest life and you have to discard you know, any untruths. And, and that's, that's what gave her the confidence to finally out Walter, which she wasn't able to do until then. And the thing was, I think what happened to Walter was is he discovered that he was really good at lying. You know, that in a sense, that was his art. His art you know, he became a, a grand liar, a grand fraud, uh, which is kind of interesting in that, in that his lies, um, I guess what, yeah, at a certain point he thought, like, why lie small? If you're going to lie, you know, if you're going to create this persona for yourself, then start comparing yourself to Michelangelo and Gauguin and, you know, and just really really sell yourself as one of the great painters of all time um, as opposed to just like hey I, I have a gallery and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a good struggling artist and I do good work uh, he really aimed to be in the pantheon I don't know if that's a lie that's just being obnoxious that's being obnoxious but it's delusional but I think whatever like, I remember reading um, uh, interviews with Millie Vanilli it was after the fraud came out that they weren't really singing but I'd go back and read the, like, the Rolling Stone interview and they would say like you know there's the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and Millie Vanilli. And they were very Walter Keene esque where they actually saw themselves in, in the history of rock and roll as being as important as those guys. Uh, so I think it's one of these things where you have this thing and you, you can't turn it off. Walter was lying in a pre internet world, and it was really easy <laughs> to keep changing your story. Sure. And which is something that some people have found kind of interesting in that the cover story changes during the movie. I mean, if, if you're watching carefully, Walter starts out saying that Margaret is the painter of the waves. And then as soon as the waves become popular, he just changes his mind and says, I'm the painter of the waves. And that is what happened in real life. I mean, we, we found, uh, you know, in our notebooks, we've got the newspapers from 1958 and 59 where he's promoting Margaret as the painter of the kids. And then he changes his mind. And it's so funny that nobody notices in the world we're living in now, a five-year-old on Google could figure this out, but back then just nobody cared. You know, it was just like yesterday's newspapers on the parrot cage, and and who cares? Because Margaret went along with it, and I think that's a key thing too, is that Margaret, Margaret was a part of the lie. She wasn't just a victim. Even if anyone was remotely suspicious, like he says he's a painter, she says he's a painter. So why would you even investigate? He's so caught up in the, the success of the lie. This is just a, a, a throwaway moment, but we, we got it from one of our interviews with Margaret. Was uh, they they get to a, a certain point late late in the marriage where Walter allows Margaret to have a style under her own name, and so there there are now two types of Keen. There's Walter Keen paintings and there's Margaret Keen paintings, and they're they're very distinct. And and Walter actually put out a book under her name, um, but then once he starts resenting her new success. He then went to her and said, okay, we're going to change it again. Now those are mine too. And that was just a little throwaway story she told us. But the idea that he thought in his delusions, sure, he can get away with that. Yesterday, you were the painter of those. T tomorrow is going to be me. And everyone's going to go along with that. It's just completely incredible. Tell me about your process of, um, of putting this piece together. And does it evolve? Because you've done several biopics. 
I'm not sure it's really evolved. We've been riding together now for for decades. Um, we kind of it's just a grind. Yes, yeah, it's, a, it's really? a grind. Which is which I think actually, uh, <laughs> if you're a rider out there, you know what we're talking about. And also, I think that's encouraging in the sense that like um, I know when we were first starting out, we uh, we had a meeting with. Uh, 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 Lowell Gantz and Babalu Mandel, who were big riders at the time, and and um, uh, we really looked up to them. And at the end of the meeting, they had to plan out when they were going to meet the next day to write. And we looked, and they, you could tell this was going to like really just sad, sad, sad that they have at, to go to work. Oh, geez, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got to go to the doctor's office at ten thirty. We'll meet at eleven, and then I got to you know. And it's All right, I'll see you at eleven. And yeah, it was I'll like, whoa, that's you know, even if you're like amazingly successful, you still have to do that. So we still have to do that. We treat it, we treat it like a job. We meet every day. Uh, Scott's behind the keyboard. I'm I'm on the couch, or I pace around, and uh, and we we plot things out. We use uh, old fashioned index cards. We don't have like a computer program for that. We actually have a cork board, and we we put the uh, uh, each scene on a on a on a car on a card and put it up there, and it allows us to see the movie, uh, the step back, and like be able to see like first act, second act, third act. The biopics and the you know uh, we consider a lot of different people, uh, uh, you know, as subjects. But usually it comes it comes almost pretty much right away when we when we hear a story or we try to figure out. How to tell the least amount of time, cover the least amount of time as possible because we hate biopics that are three hours long and, and go from the moment they were born to when they die. And for us, it's more about like asking that question why are these people important or why are these people uh, going to be remembered or why, what, why we want to tell the story. And if you can answer that question, you probably have something that resembles your third act because that gets, allows the movie to get out on why they exist. And, and, and then we also always come up with the the theme of the movie or the themes of the movie because there, there always have to be a couple ideas running through the film as opposed to just we're going to recreate this person's life for two right, hours right i mean if, there, if there's not larger ideas then it becomes a so what right who cares fine you recreate the person's life well all the biopics that you've you've worked on is there a through line is there is there something that is similar to yes they're they are all about uh, an iconoclast who has a big idea and is very, very passionate about this big idea. And the big idea is probably wrong and society is very disapproving of what this person is trying to achieve. But our person just keeps swimming upstream despite the fact that everyone is telling him to turn around. And for us, it, it's, it's completely delightful because we're rooting for this in this movie, I, I, uh, oddly, it's actually the antagonist who's that character. It's Walter. So all, all of our characters tend to be these tend to be guys who just have this big weird dream that's really screwy, but they but they sincerely believe in what they're doing, and and they won't back down. And I mean, we we you know we started calling it the anti great man biopic because it it's pure conflict, and you know in writing class you're taught that conflict is drama. And they're in conflict at all times because what they're doing is kind of wrong, or at least society thinks is wrong. Yeah. Or society thinks is wrong-headed. Uh, you know, we've made movies about people who are labeled the worst filmmaker of all time, or the you know the worst artist of all time, or you know the most well, disgusting pornographer of all time, or a comedian who or doesn't the tell the funniest comedian of all yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> but I think what makes um, our scripts interesting and different is we kind of take a non-judgmental view of them. And, and the and big eyes, art critics or the gallery owners are there to tell us what people at the time thought of the Keens or at least these the culture thought of the Keens. But we don't 
we don't comment on the art. We don't tell you whether you know Edward's movies are good or bad, or, or the Keen's arts are good or bad. We let you make that judgment yourself. The turn stamp character. Tim get points for that one for 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 doing something very unexpected. Uh, we we worked with Tim on a bunch of the casting. I'm not sure we worked with Tim on that character. No. And we wrote the part as what is when you picture the fussy protect the uh, the establishing order leading art critic of the old wasp New York Times from the mid-century it's what you're picturing we were it's it's Tony Randall in a bow tie it's Wallace Shawn it's a it's a fussy prissy man and that's what we were picturing and then just him had this hilarious idea of ca- casting this ball breaking Terrence Stamp this imperious godlike figure who just won't take it from anybody uh, which was really funny because it, it meant doing a slight adjustment in the scene where they confront each other because we wrote it that when Walter gets angry and starts to pick a fight uh, the guy hides behind a group of women and Tim said you gotta change one line with this piece of casting We're like which line and then he said Terrence Stamp doesn't hide behind anybody <laughs> no, that's a very that's a very powerful because yeah, yeah. it yeah, not no, only it, tells it, us a great. lot about the critic it tells us a lot about Walter yeah, yeah, but it also says that you know I think what, what Tim was was recognizing is that the 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 critic had to be this powerful voice of God in a sense that that that, that this establishment that he the that buck Walt, stops with him right and so to make him a little uh, a fussy man uh, would have would have would have given Walter too much power that you know you can't you can't get Terrence Stamp to back down. Come on, man. He was in Superman. He's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's great. I mean, yeah. that, that, that scene is a total riot, and Tim, Tim really improved it by yeah. casting someone so completely crazy in that part. How does this one stand? Because the films are all fairly different, like autofocus, very creepy. I mean, yeah. a part of uh, Bob Crane, right? Yeah, yeah. that's correct. Yeah. That, who knew? Who knew? And just looking at technology, the guy brings in a VCR. Yeah. It's the size of a trunk. Yeah, uh, well, that was, was a, like the 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 helical scan, yeah, uh, video recorder. Yeah, yeah. The, that movie's obsession with lumbering early video technology at, at a cross axis with out of control sex, melding these right. two ideas. Yeah, the technology uh, we love in that film because the, the, for us there was there was these guys who um, it was a, VCRs were a miracle. It was like wait a second. Basically, filming you can have sex with a woman the night before and then watch it the next day. I mean, that's a mind-blowing idea yeah. when, it, when it first happened. Yeah, Even the idea of watching Johnny Carson the next day is mind-blowing. Do, do you do you ever just go look what we found? I mean, you find these stories and just go, oh my god. I mean, we realize that we've had a very blessed uh, career in the sense that we we've we've, um, uh, we've made movies that that most people. Uh, feel like there's the yeah, you ask that question how the heck do you get that made yeah, I remember but, when but, a friend of mine saw a pretty autofocus they were like saying like you know you, you guys are like super producers I mean, how do you get a movie like that you know funded by Sony of all places with autofocus I mean where I'll give us the credit I mean Michael wrote it it was brought to us by Michael and uh, a pal of his Todd Roskin and uh, they had the rights to the book um uh, which was about the, the murder of Bob Crane, about the investigation in Scottsdale. And, and right. they wanted to make a movie about a, a, a grizzled police detective who works too much and he drinks a bit and his marriage is breaking up and this is a case he just can't crack. And 
It was written, it was written by, by yeah, Robert, Robert Graysmith. Yeah, Graysmith, who also wrote Zodiac. And so he's kind of fascinated by these unsolved mysteries. And that's all fine and good. And we said, who cares? Yeah. And then we just started riffing, saying, now, if we were going to make this movie... It's about the guy who is a good family man in Tarzana, and then he falls into this world, and then his marriage breaks up, and then he can't stop himself, and now the show's off the air, and now he's putting on the leather jacket, and he's walking into, into you know, bars near golf courses at four in the afternoon because he knows there's a rerun of his old show, and he wants to be recognized so he can pick up the local girl while he's touring in some crappy dinner theater show, and... To us, that was sort of like the rise and fall that we thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and then Todd and Michael were like, well, really? Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> let's try it that way. And it, it's, all about, it's all about the version of the story you choose to tell and, and how you want to shape it. Because, yeah, somebody could have made a movie about that detective in Scottsdale, but it wouldn't be us. You guys meet in film school. Yes. And then what was it about, uh, what was it about each other that there was just this synergy? I mean, we just started, I mean, we, we had this idea of, Again, it wasn't even an idea for a movie. It was a, it was a, a crazy newspaper story, and we started Riffin'. joking about it, and then saying, "Well, yeah, but what, what if that what if that what if that kid what if that high school kid in that newspaper story were actually Morris Day from the Times? <laughs> yeah, and what if he and what if uh, instead of uh, getting in a, in a in a in a fight with the school principal, he got in a fight with Albert Brooks, who lived in the house." And what if Albert Brooks had a next-door neighbor, Walter Matthau, who's a lawyer who doesn't like him? And, and we're, we're just riffing on, on this weird true-life story, and suddenly we had an idea for a, a movie, and we sort of, you know, we, we giggle at the same stuff. So that's what, sort of what provoked us into actually trying to write a script together. And it sold a few weeks after we graduated from college, and we've kind of been working ever since. So it's kind of one of those things where it, um, we just keep on keeping on. What did you learn about the process making Big Eyes? I, I guess you. Uh, I don't know whether we learned it in a good way or a bad way, but never give up. I mean, you know, I, I, for a long time people thought we were crazy. For to, there was to, a lot of career sabotage. Yeah, because our career, our career yeah. was just prepping Big Eyes. I mean, working on a movie for for eleven years, you're you know, it's like there are people saying, "Oh, dude, move on." Because you're not but, getting paid, right? We're not getting paid. We're not that. It's you're you're paying you're paying money. You're paying um, in. Yeah, I mean, our, so we our, did other a couple other films in 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 that time period. But uh, you know, Big Eyes was our was our sort of our dream project, and that's what we kept on uh, concentrating on. And also because it, I mean, it, I'm looking at the 1408 poster, and when we were working on 1408, is when we started trying to gear up uh, Big Eyes for real. Mm-hmm. And that movie came out in 2007. Yeah. And this is our first credit since 1408. So it's been, it's been seven years because we just kept trying to make this this dang movie. Well, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if this is a stretch, but in looking at Margaret's life and as it's chronicled in the film, 10 years kind of in silence. And after that 10th year... Oh, wow. She, she, gets, she gets the recognition. Oh, that's yeah. it. And that's your film, your film, your film took... Ten years in the process, <laughs> and now you're going to get the recognition that you deserve. That's an Thank interesting you. parallel. I never. And also, never too, that it. don't give up because right. that's her thing. Right. Is do not give up. I mean, do you? Does part of that maybe it's it's on a super conscious level, but it winds up in the work. Yeah, I, I mean, we weren't we weren't aware of it at the time in terms of sort of throwing good after bad. You know, you you keep losing at the at the poker table, so you keep putting more chips on. We we didn't know how long this was going to go on. I mean, we've talked about this. You know, I don't know how Larry votes. You know, 
if you told me in 2003 it'd be 11 years when the movie came out I wouldn't I wouldn't have worked on the movie there's no way I, we would have committed up front what was it about that you didn't cut bait and say look okay we've, we've did you set a time frame or no you... we didn't say we didn't I mean we, we don't do that we just we believed in the story we got enough encouragement I mean there's always some version of it in in in, in kind of pre-production whether it was a version with Thomas Hayden Church or a version with Reese Witherspoon or there was enough people like you know uh, you know coming to us and and saying this script is really good, just try to figure out how to make it. Well, well, but we didn't um, we didn't do the the slushy Marx Brothers because we use our the slushy Marx Brothers. Yeah, we, 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 we our, our our old agent who uh, we were with for more than twenty years, and then he retired, so that's why he's no longer agent. Uh, Tom Strickler, uh, he would get completely fed up that Larry and I wouldn't let projects die. And, it, and and we, we had uh, we had a project about a drunken snowman called mm. Slushy, and 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 we also had this this biopic about the Marx Brothers, and he would get so angry at us that he would set us up in meetings to go oh this is this is producer you guys don't know I I think you would really get along well I'm going like, I'm gonna set up a general meeting you go and just so, get to know each other, and then, you know he'd call back later that day like what the hell is wrong with you guys. Why did you bring up Slushy? Right. I just got a phone call that I'm supposed to send this producer Slushy now. No one wants to make your drunken snowman picture. Just <laughs> stop it. Stop it. You let you you reach a point with a project where you let it go. And this and we had the same thing with Marx Brothers, which is like the classy version of the Slushy problem. And and so it's it's interesting that that we did mm-hmm. learn. It's just be, because we would with, with Slushy we got yelled at too many times. And I mean Slushy we <laughs> probably 15 years we were trying to get slushy made Marx Brothers there's probably five or eight years where we kept trying to reconfigure okay it's shorter it's longer it's a two hour TV movie it's a four hour miniseries it's a six able six hour cable event series it's, we were constantly trying to just just get it onto a screen somehow but then we would reach a point where we would stop and there, there, and there was a day where we said to each other alright we're not going to bring up Marx Brothers again we're going to stop sending that script out we love it dearly but it's dead and when people would come to us and say, hey, what's going on with Marx Brothers? We would say, sadly, it's dead. Right. And, and that would be the end of the conversation. But with Big Eyes, for some reason, we ignored all those lessons of the past. Well, part of it, I think, was because we owned it. Oh, yeah. We, 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 yeah. Well, well, Slushy we controlled. Slushy we controlled. Uh, but we, it, hey, we still do. Hey. Hey, let's go make Slushy, Larry. <laughs> we, could do, uh, we could do one of those like Indiegogo campaigns for Slushy. Who wants or, to see an alcoholic snowman? It was, it was a parody of, of Rankin Bass uh, Christmas specials. Oh right. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, about Those were a, a, great. Yeah, it's really funny. It, was re- it probably still is really funny. It's great. Yeah. Flash forward, then Tim Burton gets involved. Yes. Which you've had a lot of experience with him. Yeah. What is that like when you have when you work with the director that you worked with before? Because you understand his. You have a common language, correct? Well, yeah. I mean, I think particularly with Tim, I think that's one of the reasons why we work with Tim. Uh, I mean, e- even though it was 20 years ago, Ed Wood, uh, we, we worked with him in between. But we get him and he gets us. So it's, uh, there's almost a, a mind-reading ability, I think, that, that both sides kind of have. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, we approached we approached Tim initially as a producer, and he came on the, the, on this project initially, you know, just to help us out with, like, a Tim Burton Presents or something like that to try to get uh, funding for the film. And uh, and then later on, we actually approached him about swapping places with us, and, and we would produce and he would direct. Um, so it was, uh, uh, you know, Tim... Tim, we like working with Tim because Tim... Um, 
uh, first of all, he really respects our work and our words, and he really, you know, he uh, he does justice to them, and um, uh, he also likes to mix different kind of tones. You know, he's not afraid of making something funny and sad and a thriller all at the same time, kind of. And certainly, Ed Wood had that. You know, where there was really really funny moments, and then there's that touching stuff with Ed and Bella. Um, and uh, Big Eyes, same thing, where there are some really, really funny, funny things in Big Eyes, but then there's also this tragic story of this of this woman. What Big Eyes has, what the other movies don't have, um, is kind of a more rousing climax. Like, before you really, and a female this, protagonist. And a female protagonist, and you really, it's really come from behind victory. Uh, what surprised us in uh, these recent screenings is is people are cheering, people are applauding, and, um, uh, you know, that, that I don't know if we've ever written a movie where people cheered. Well, all, all the other biopics have bittersweet endings. Mm-hmm. Is, is the, the character gains something, but there's also a big loss, too. You know, someone's dead, or, or they just made a terrible movie, but they don't know it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but th- this, this movie is... is, is <laughs> or, it, or your best friend strangles you with a VCR cord. Oh, that too. <laughs> Bludgeons you to death. That's a problem. With a video camera. The thing that I loved about it, one of the things was the colors. Mm-hmm. I mean, to look at San Francisco back in the day. Yeah. And what the, is a Thelonious Monk? They're going to... A, a, uh, Cal Jader. Cal Jader. Cal Jader. Right. Um, but just the way, and I think that's what Tim Burton is so good at, is yeah. that art direction and the colors. And an amazing DP, Bruno. Did an amazing job on this movie. Because even even when she's painting and looking at those, it, there was a bit of magic. Even though the story, some parts were very intense, like you say, it covers a lot of a lot of ground. There is that kind of lyrical, whimsical aspect of the film, and then there's also that that hardcore reality that this is a couple that is struggling with you know, abuse. She's mm-hmm. she has this trail of of, of abuse and. It's it's just a fascinating character study. Well, yeah, yeah. We, we, I don't think we ever talked about this, but I, I know when we were we were going to direct the movie, we had talked a lot about the colors in Margaret's paintings and wanting to use them in the movie. And I'm thinking about the movie now. I think all the attic stuff. Sure. The attic stuff, and actually, you know what? Even it, too. And, well, and the painting room. Actually, both painting rooms. The painting room in the attic and the painting room in, in Woodside. You have a lot. Of, have a lot of those kind of muddy earth tones and yellows that are that tend to be in the background of, mm-hmm. of Margaret's paintings. Well, it's funny because I saw Mike Lee's Mr. Turner, mm-hmm. and it, at, there are times when he creates the image so it looks like a Turner painting. Okay. But he did say this has got to be the best. Well, there was some critic who said this is the best film ever made about an artist, mm-hmm. which I didn't <laughs> agree with that. We've not seen it, so we yeah. Well, I mean, you take yeah. a guy; it's the last twenty-five years of his life after he's already successful. Where's the struggle? Yeah. Well, that, that I mean, that's why we do the anti-great man thing. Is that is that is that when we look at movies about great men, we sort of say, "Where's the struggle?" Even you know, so the, then the movie sometimes has to be about something else. It has to be about oh, they're they're an alcoholic, or they're they're you know, they're, there's something else going uh, going on that, and so we we like the whatever we make a movie about. A, a movie director is going to be about him directing movies. We make a movie about an artist. It's going to be a movie about about him being an artist. And and so when you deal with a successful person, it's uh, it's a this a different can of worms. I mean, I mean, at, at the time we made Ed Wood, I mean, there were there were a few kind of snarky comments saying, "Oh, great." I mean, all oh, this was at, at the time. No one's made a movie about Alfred Hitchcock. No one's made a movie about Orson Welles. But there's a movie about Ed Wood. Right. <laughs> How did he get picked? And for us, he got picked because we like him. Yeah. Hmm. 
I mean, our movies, uh, for better or worse, we did change the biopic genre a bit. Uh, that 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 sense. I think Ed Wood more than more than the others, where it made people realize, hey, you can make movies about people in the margins. You can you can make make a, a biopic about uh, pop culture figures who are just sort of, you know, in, uh, you know, rele- relegated to the behind the music or. Um, you know, the E True Hollywood story. No one's Perfect. racing to make a biopic about John Ford. Exactly. Exactly. So you both really love movies, don't you? Yes. Sure. So. Yeah. Is that what led you to this business originally? I think we love movies. You right. know, we both were young young kids with super eight cameras. I mean I, I started making, you know, stop motion animation when I was about nine years old. Mm-hmm. Um, actually actually the the first the first movie I ever made was in Actually, when I was eight in third grade, uh, Dad came in and taught us all how to use Super 8 camera, and uh, I convinced everyone in my class to make a fake Marx Brothers movie, oddly enough. I made uh, little little kung fu movies. Little, yeah. Yeah. But we, was... I think we're also big movie goers. We love, you know, uh, uh, we just love films, and we love obscure films, and, you know, so uh, we tend to be those guys who just are still out there, you know, trying to see as many films as possible, and... Um, you know that we actually met uh, at USC in a, in a line, struck up a conversation about an obscure filmmaker named Hersher Gordon Lewis, and that's how we became friends. Did you have mentors when you were starting out? Back in Indiana, I was part of a television show called Beyond Our Control, which was kind of a second city TV for young people. And there was a, a guy named Dave Williams who ran that show. He he died uh, while I was still doing it, um, and he very much. Uh, was a figure that that uh, you know I had I had certainly had dreams of making films before that, but he was someone who made it seem like it, it could be a reality, and he also you know really taught me the basics of uh, of comedy writing, and uh, so he was someone who I would I would think as a very pivotal figure in, in my life as a mentor. I, I would I would say my my two drama teachers, uh, Gene Mullen in junior high and Vicky Francis in high school, who both really encouraged me and. And gave me a lot of rope. Uh, and when when I started make making movies, and I would need to pull favors, like oh, I, I want to shoot, you know, on, at school on a Saturday, and they would make arrangements to get me in. And then when I wanted to show my movies, they would make arrangements. You know, they would talk, fast talk the principal into giving me the entire auditorium. <laughs> you know, so I could invite the whole school, you know, to to show my work. And and they 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 really. Sort of made me think like this was some something that could be that that I could do in my life. I think that's really important for uh, at some point a young person uh, meets an older person and they tell them you're good at this, you can do this, and that somehow sticks in the back of their mind. Whether it's you know whether it's fixing a car or, or writing a screenplay or or painting a painting, if someone comes along and says, "Hey, this this is something you could do." And then, and the kid says, "Hmm, oh, maybe this is something I can do." Um, but it, it's interesting. The uh, movie Whiplash out right now, which uh, I, I really thought was terrific, and that kind of takes the exact opposite mm-hmm. approach with the with the mentor relationship, which is the person's completely non-supportive. That's funny. Mm. Yeah, you need a supportive person before you can get to that guy, or or that guy is just a, something you got to overcome. I mean, I will say that uh, a person you didn't bring up, Scott, is a is a is a writing teacher. Oh, Jim! Um, oh, my favorite writing teacher, it, Jim Boyle. It wasn't. It's funny. He's not really a mentor. You really, no. no one. We didn't no. have. We had zero personal relationship with this guy. But 
he he looked at at uh, at screenplays as kind of architecture, as graphic design. Yeah, I I, I thought he was brilliant. He ta- he he taught at USC when we were there, and then uh, there was some, something happened, and he and he didn't he didn't have tenure, and then he suddenly disappeared. And I felt really bad for all the students who came after me because they didn't get to take Jim, and 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 he had these brilliant ideas that this screenplay is a text which is as valid as the movie. And that you want the experience of reading a screenplay to be as exciting as the experience of watching the film, and like like a one page of a script equals one minute of a movie. It should also be one minute of reading, and if it's a funny scene, you should be laughing out loud, and if it's a scary scene, you should be scared. And and it was just a lot about how you visually design the prose on the page to sort of equal the experience of watching the film and. And he would talk about people like E.E. E. Cummings, who sort of used the words on the page visually to sort of to sort of make you see what they're writing about. It's a, I, I, I think it's really cool stuff, and I and I still live by it every day. And uh, I think our, I think our scripts sort of have a clean read and a visceral read that a lot of other scripts don't have, sort of because of Jim. Does it get easier? the writing or is it always a no, struggle no it doesn't get easier at all nah it does, yeah it's, it's just you know yeah we just, it, gets, it maybe gets grumpier do you, do you deal with writer's block and how do you overcome uh, that yeah of course you do but uh, the plus is that um, we, we deal we, now with a lot of distraction yes which enables writer's block uh, I, I, I think maybe you know maybe uh, maybe the internet and email has been a bad thing for writing because you're just constantly distracted. Right. And, 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 and now, sometimes you can confuse that distraction with doing like, uh, oh, I need another word for that. And you're looking for something. But, then you, but while you're doing that, you end up at Amazon at some point. <laughs> and you're buying something all of a sudden. Yeah, it's like, what the heck's going on? You know, I, I need to take that, that my favorite synonym book and just put it back on the desk. Yeah. Because I, you know, because it means I would have to get out of my chair and walk three feet. Right. So instead I just go to, you know, Google synonym and the words are never really that good and, and, <laughs> and my little pink synonym book is really a good book but it, it would mean I'd have to get out of my chair what do you think it is about your films that, that resonate so much with audiences because <laughs> just the body of work Man in the Moon okay. the Larry Flint film now Big Eyes I mean they look at life through the eyes of an outside of outsiders and I think that's our, one of our connections with both uh, Tim Burton and Milo Schwarman, uh, that they sort of, you know, have that sort of, uh, you know, they know how to capture the spirit of, of, of an outsider. I mean, a lot of the, I mean, I, I find it exciting that, uh, and yeah, I, I've got, I've got uh, three young, youngish kids, and uh, I mean, both, both my boys are in college now, and so, you know, a lot of, you know, High schoolers have passed through my house in recent years, and I, I find it really cool and surprising that they've discovered our movies on cable. You know, mm. God bless HBO. HBO you know runs Larry Flint into the ground, and it's really cool to me that all these years later these movies really stick with these kids, and the kids really find something in them. And you know, maybe it's that thing that you know every sixteen-year-old in the world feels like an outsider, and our movies are all about people who feel like they're they're outside the glass looking in, and so you know maybe that's why they they always connect.
Until next time, this is Mark Gordon, and I'll see you center stage. Hello, this is Homer Simpson. Whenever I want to know what's going on in the entertainment world, I listen to Center Stage with Mark Gordon. Hehehe. <laughs>